0: Isaiah 43, 14. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. And this is the word of the Lord. You guys can grab a seat. Um, and let me just pray as we, as we get in the word. Jesus, I just ask as we open your word, as we talk about what it means to be people of Yahweh, as we talk about what it means to be connected to a holy and personal God, I pray that you would just meet each one of us here today. I pray that your spirit would move in our hearts. I pray that you would convict us of truth, that you would just encourage us, God, and build us up as your people, as your church. Help us to walk close with you, God, and I just ask that you'd be present here today in our midst. In Jesus' beautiful name, amen. 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 All right, so we're in the midst of this series um, that we kind of kicked off a couple months ago, and it's the people of Yahweh. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about the Holy One of Israel. You can switch to the next slide and actually, oh yeah, we already read the scripture, so. so, today we're going to kind of get into and pick up where we left off. We've been in this um, conversation that Rick and um, new guy, Proby, what's his name? Uh, <laughs> Daniel. Um, <laughs> we're just, I'll just Oh, I'll just tell you this. Weird things happen when you get up and speak sometimes. Sometimes your mind just goes empty. So Daniel um, has been talking about this courtroom scene. Last week we talked about spiritual warfare. I encourage you to, to pick it up. And I'll also just remind you that conversation is not closed. I've been having a lot of conversations about um, just what it means that we um, that we worship God and we also... God is at war with demons and these demonic powers and the, the work and influence they have in our lives sometimes. And so feel free to continue to have those conversations in your communities or with us as leaders. We'd love to engage you on that. But so um, Daniel's been talking about this idea of these demonic powers and how this courtroom scene and, and um, how God is um, kind of over this, this scene and he rules over all creation. And those other gods that we talked about, lowercase gods, Elohim, are also spiritual demonic powers that are at work in the world. But God is sovereign. God's on the throne. God rules over everything, all creation. So today we're going to pick up the story and kind of it marks a turn in the passage where God's going to start to focus on this theme of redemption. And we're going to see that today. But first of all, I wanted to just call out with this chart here, um, in the passage, if we break it down, there's these different titles of God that we see. And um, the two here marks, this is, this is repeated twice, as is Yahweh. When you see the, uh, the word Lord in all caps, it's representative in your translations of the personal name of God, which we've been talking about, people of Yahweh. So God also introduces himself as creator, redeemer, and king. But really, the, the central focus of this passage is Redeemer. So we're going to spend the most time talking about that. But I wanted you guys to see a little chart of just kind of visually, like, these are the different aspects of God's, um, of God's character and his names that are introduced to us today. And we're going to walk through them. And so the, really, the focus of this passage, the one that's re- repeated the most, in addition to Yahweh, his personal name is the Holy One of Israel. And so... Um, I want to start talking about what it means. So um, this idea of holiness that God introduces um, in the Old Testament is actually, um, I think we often fail to understand or rightly understand what holiness is. I was actually chatting with Daniel about it this, this week. We were prepping, and I was talking about how this idea of the Holy One of Israel was mentioned in um, God's holiness. And I even made the mistake as I was kind of talking about it, and I started talking about God's righteousness, uh, God's right action. And that is part of what it means that God is holy. But actually, the idea of holiness really just means, in its simplest form, to be separate. Um, If we go to this next slide here, the idea of holiness refers to a complete and distinctive nature, sphere, and activity that gods possess. So um, this idea of holiness that um, is less about necessarily the way we think of, we tend to think of holiness as like, well, you're, you're holy because you're doing all the right things. And you're not holy because you're not doing all the right things. And so we kind of even define this. We use the language like uh, someone is holier than thou, right? We've, we've heard that before in, in a religious sense. And usually we, we mean it to refer to... Some people are holy that are doing the the things God wants us to do, and the people that are not holy are the people that, that are not doing what God wants them to do. But actually, this idea of holiness, it's a word in the Hebrew, kadosh, and that phrase, the Holy One of Israel, kadosh, yi israel, refers to God's distinctive nature, his distinctness against everything else. It's this idea of separateness or otherness that God embodies, that actually... The ancients believed in the, in the Hebrews in their world, all of the Elohim possessed a sphere of activity. All of the Elohim possessed an, a, a certain complete and distinctive nature. But when God says, I'm the Holy One of Israel, he's saying something very unique. He's singular. He's the Holy One. He's singular. He's distinct from all other gods, lowercase g, Elohim. He is supreme. And this idea of holiness is, is actually captures this complete sense of God's total character, his total action, his total attributes. And all of those things together in totality represent his holiness, his distinctness from everything else in the universe. And so when God says, I'm the Holy One of Israel, he's also linking himself to Israel. He's linking himself to God's people. So, which is fascinating to me because a lot of times, if you think of the ancient like Greek and Roman gods, and if you read those... Uh, Familiar with some of the mythology, gods like Zeus are tyrannical and powerful, and they don't care about humanity. They're just there doing whatever they want to do. But interestingly, God has woven His even His definition of His names in with Israel. He's not just the Holy One; He's the Holy One of Israel, which I find fascinating and also powerful that God had chosen to link Himself to Israel's story, to link Himself to His people. So if you flip to the next side, there's a quote here from an Old Testament scholar. Um, and it helps us get at this idea of holiness. So um, in this sense, all the gods were holy because they possessed their own distinctive nature, sphere, and activity. And those who devoted their lives to the gods were holy as belonging to that distinctive sphere. Like the shrine girl, literally the holy woman, Cadessa of Genesis 38.20 And then as a separate quote here from later on in in the commentary, it says, Holiness is the quality which marks off the divine nature, setting God apart from all else, making him the being that he is. Now, if you're familiar with Genesis 38, if you're not, I'll I'll do a a quick PG-13 version of it for for Sunday since we have some some younger folk. But you can go read it. It's a crazy story. (laughs) It's one of these Old Testament stories in in the, the narrative of Genesis, Joseph it kind of breaks and, and has this story about Judah. And Judah's daughter, Tamar, um, his daughter-in-law, um, was, he was married to Judah's son. Um, her husband passed away. And she didn't have anyone to be a kinsman redeemer for her to raise up seed and basically pass on the, her, her, her family name. And so she kind of called out and cried out for a, a, a redemption. Judah provided his... His son-in-law or his son Onan Onan, uh, was evil and refused to, to, to do that. And so then you kind of see in this passage as it goes on, she kind of gets to this desperate place realizing her family name is cut off. And she actually goes, um, she sees Judah going down um, to the Canaanites and she actually uh, kind of goes and uh, kind of sneaks her way down there, dresses up, as a cult prostitute on the side of the road, uh, and ends up attracting Judah, um, sleeping with them, getting pregnant, and then when it 's found out that she 's pregnant they 're basically saying we 're going to stone you because that and, and that day was viewed as sinful and viewed as as abhorrent in, the, in their culture. long story short um, she ends up Judah ends up realizing he was he was the, the uh, father. And actually, the, the kinsman redeemer. if the brother-in-law wasn't, then the father-in-law was supposed to fulfill the role of kinsman redeemer. So Judah had even failed in that. When his son failed, he also failed and kind of left Tamar. And he acknowledges his sin there, and he realizes, I failed. You were more righteous than I. But the interesting thing about this is this idea... This, in, um, in the ESV, it translates it cult prostitute, but the literal rendering of it in the Hebrew is holy woman or sacred woman, which is really interesting. I think it's, it's fascinating to me that this idea of this cult prostitute actually, in the original languages, captures the sense of what it means to be holy because they were fully devoted to the sphere of their god. Those ancient pagan gods were, were worshipped for different things, and some of the gods were worshipped by child sacrifice. Others were worshipped by animal sacrifice. Others were worshipped by sexual practice. And that was the description of those women where they were cult prostitutes. They were actually holy because they were devoted fully to the sphere and activity of those evil gods. But what God is calling us to do, and this helps us understand The phrase throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament in Leviticus where it says, be holy as I am holy, God really wants us to be devoted to him. Um, From Leviticus to 1 Peter, we're called to be holy as God is holy. We're actually called to be devoted to the sphere of Yahweh, to his activity, to his nature, to his character. Our calling to be holy is not necessarily expressed just in doing all the right things because our own righteousness The Bible says this is filthy rags to uh, to God. We cannot do of our own self anything righteous. Our righteousness comes from him. And when we are devoted to his sphere, to his activity, to his nature, to his character, we are holy. And so this call of the Holy One of Israel captures this beautifully, this theme throughout the Old Testament of, of holiness. And I'll just say too, Isaiah is actually incredibly passionate about this word holy. He actually uses it more than the entire Old Testament combined. He uses it more in his writing in the book of Isaiah than the entire Old Testament. And it's a huge theme for him. He actually uses this construction, the Holy One of Israel, Kadosh Israel. He uses it like 25 times, and it's only used six times in the rest of the Old Testament. But then the word holy shows up, not Holy One of Israel, but holy shows up everywhere. And probably the most pinnacle example of that is in Isaiah 6. And Isaiah 6, we see this heavenly scene, kind of this vision that that Isaiah has when he's called to ministry. And we see this phrase. Now, if you remember back to last week, Daniel talked about this idea in the Hebrew of a superlative, which is, if you wanted to emphasize something in Hebrew... They didn't have emoji back then, and they didn't have exclamation points and all caps and all the things that we do to, like, really get our point home, right? So for them, they would emphasize something twice. If, if the Hebrew, they wanted to say something and really have you listen to it and hear it, you would say it twice. Now, the only time in the Old Testament Scripture where we see something that's re- repeated thrice three times is in Isaiah 6 when it says holy 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 is the lord god almighty that's again repeated and echoed in the book of revelation but that idea almost a super superlative it's this statement about god that is the totality of his being his otherness his distinctiveness it's like isaiah is just throwing down this massive picture of god and saying he's distinct from everything he is completely separate from everything else in the world. And it's this beautiful picture that he paints of what holiness is. And God is devoted to his own otherness, his own character, his own distinctness from everything else. And he's, in this passage, we're gonna see with the language that he uses, he repeats over and over all these different aspects of his character. I'm the Holy One. I'm your Redeemer. I'm your Creator. I'm your King. And he's doing this in a way because he's kind of flexing. He's kind of showing off his, divine, his divineness because he's wanting to call Israel into and invite Israel into this reality of what it means to be belong to God, what it means to be devoted, to be holy as he is holy, what it means to experience God's redemption, to be created by God. And so we see beautifully, as he intros this, I wanted to just walk us through this idea of the Holy One of Israel. now we're going to kind of transition, and I want you to keep this idea of holiness in mind. We're going to come back to it at the end. But this idea, we're going to walk through it, and really this idea of Redeemer, um, you can go to the next, uh, next section. So we're going to talk at length about what it means that God is our Redeemer. But first I want to talk about the bookends that he talks about in verse 15, when he says, um, "I am the Lord, your holy One, the creator of Israel and your king." And really what he's doing here, um, if you go to the next slide here, he's really talking about the beginning and the, and the totality of Israel's story. And Redeemer, we're going to, as we get into, what, it, what covers the kind of middle of the story of, of God's people. But at the beginning, God is is reminding Israel, I'm your creator, Israel. And creator here isn't referring back to necessarily Genesis 1. He's really referring to the creation of Israel, the calling of Abraham that happens in Genesis 12, marked by Abraham and the covenant that God established with Abraham as he called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. He called Abraham out of Babylon. He was just a Babylonian dude. And God called them, and God created a people Starting in Genesis 12, and he's reminding Israel, he's going to focus in on a Re- Re- redeemer, and we're going to talk at length about that. But he wants to remind Israel, Israel, I'm your Creator. I created you. I called you as a people. I called you out of nothing, just like he created the whole worlds and created everything out of nothing. He's also called Israel, and so um, he's also going to emphasize. The king, which is really seen in, in in the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God established with David in Second Samuel seven, and that covenant, which was there would be an everlasting king that would rule forever, and we see both of those reach their fulfillment in Jesus, who inaugurated the uh, kingdom of God and who talked at length about preaching the gospel of the kingdom of heaven, and who came to invite us into his kingdom. And it speaks to Israel's future. Now, their present experience with the kings was broken. And we're going to see that when we talk about God as a redeemer. But this idea that there was a failure of leadership. There was a failure of kingly leadership. First of all, God rejected Israel. I mean, uh, Israel rejected God as king when they asked for a human king. And then we're also in the midst of this narrative in Israel where God is, uh, God's people are experiencing punishment because of their sin, of their rejection of him. They're experiencing this captivity in Babylon, and God's promising to them, hey, I'm going to redeem you from Babylon, but I'm also going to redeem this notion that you have in your mind of what a king is, because I'm going to be your king. That was always God's heart. It was always his intention, and the way that he would do that um, is through Jesus, this future king that was promised that would rule forever. And so we actually see, if you flip to the next side, this is for Israel, and then I want to look at both of these for us. So our creation, if we think about it, not when we were formed in in our parents' womb, in our mother's womb, but actually the new birth. Ephesians 2 talks about when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, Christ died for you and made us alive in him. So we were made alive. We experienced this new birth because of God. And so just like Israel experienced... This calling out of Babylon, we have also experienced this calling out of sin, out of the sin nature that we inherited when we were born. And so for us, what it means for us as we think about God being our creator, as Christians in this room, we can think back to that moment when God saved us. And I think it's important to go back to that moment to realize this had nothing to do with us, had nothing to do with our own ingenuity or figuring things out. It actually had everything to do with God calling us, God inviting us into something greater. And that's what the new birth is all about. Ephesians 2, especially this first, you know, 10 or so verses capture that really beautifully. This picture of God redeeming, of God calling us out of nothing, of God calling us out of death. And so this is what it means for us that God is our creator. God has created us. He has caused us to be born again. And also in Romans 8, he promises beautifully um, this new creation. And so, this is really the culmination of God's kingdom. Is this? Um, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna read f- briefly from from Romans eight. But um, this language is incredible, and God is describing for us the culmination of what it means that God is King. And what is that going to mean for creation? What is that going to mean for us? In uh, Romans eight eighteen, it says, "For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit grown inwardly. So we see this picture that God is painting for us of when the King comes and when Jesus comes to rule and reign on the earth, everything is going to be made right. Creation itself is going to be woven back together perfectly and recreated and made perfect again. There's going to be no more death. There's going to be no more sadness, no more sin, no more disease, no more sickness, no more fighting, and strife. We're all going to be made perfect. And creation itself is going to be made perfect. And so we see in both of these pictures, the bookends of our own story, not just Israel's story. We see God as creator, God created Israel. He called Israel. But the promise to Abraham was that the whole nations of the whole world are going to be blessed through Abraham. And that is fulfilled in us through Jesus when he, when he caused us to be born again. We also see the other bookend: God is King. God is ruling over His creation. God is this better King that is promised. I think a great picture of this is in the in, in the Lord of the Rings. Um, if you are a fan of nerdy, you know, um, elves and dwarves and all that kind of stuff, um, the if you're familiar with the story, the picture of Aragorn, this King, kind of, um, kind of this dark horse. The kingdom of men had all been kind of like, you know, abandoned. And there was no hope for the kingdom of men. The kingdom of men had failed, and actually caused the ring to be falling into the into the hands of um, the hands of evil. And it was because of men that this whole calamity had come upon Middle Earth, right? But the king, there's, there's a beautiful picture when the, and especially in the, the Return of the King, the the, the third book, the third story, part of the story, where Aragorn comes back and leads. And actually takes his rightful place on the throne. It's this kind of beautiful redemptive picture that I think really captures um, in a way what this means that God is king. God's gonna return and make everything right. And he's gonna rule and he's gonna vanquish evil forever. He's gonna vanquish sin and death forever. And he's gonna lead us into this eternal kingdom where everything is gonna be made right and we're gonna live with him forever. It's a beautiful promise and a beautiful future that he has in store for us. Okay, but what about now? What about now? So let's get into this idea of your redeemer because this is really important. Um, I'll read this section again in verse 14. Thus says the Lord, your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. So God sovereignly raised up Babylon to punish Israel. And, and he told Israel, if you continue to worship other gods, and you continue to um, forsake my name, I'm going to send you to to Babylon, and they're going to punish you. And that happened. But now God is saying, for your sake, Israel, I'm your redeemer, and I'm going to send to Babylon. I'm going to bring them down as fugitives. I'm going to redeem this situation. The word redeemer there is the word goel. It's the kinsman of redeemer. We, We brushed on that. In Genesis 38:20, uh, and the the passage uh, that we read, the the clearest, most beautiful example of that in the in the Old Testament is uh, the the book of Ruth. It's four chapters. I encourage you to read it. It's a beautiful picture of this woman Naomi and her daughter daughter-in-law Ruth, who were abandoned. Naomi's um, husband died. Ruth, her daughter-in-law, their husbands died. One of the daughter-in-laws went went back to back to the Canaanites, and Ruth was a Canaanite woman, just like. Tamar was, likely, um, and she chose to link herself to Naomi and to Naomi's people, to God's people. They came back to Israel. They happened to, f- to connect with this, this man, Boaz, who was a, her kinsman, and re- redeemer, who was in her family line who could actually redeem her and marry her and raise a family for her so that Naomi's line would not, would not die out. And he did that. There was another closer kinsman redeemer who also refused, similar to the story in Genesis thirty-eight, he refused to, to perform that role. But but Boaz stood up and he did it. And the beautiful thing is both of those stories, both Tamar and her offspring, and Ruth and Naomi's offspring are in the lineage of Jesus. When you look through in Matthew and Luke at the lineage of Jesus, we, we see both of those characters in there, which I think is just a beautiful picture of God's redemption that's woven into, into this story. So if we go to the next slide, this idea of a redeemer brings together two things, which I think is beautiful. It brings together this Holy One of Israel, which is kind of as we talked about holiness, this transcendent aspect of God's nature, the fact that he is utterly other. He's utterly perfect. He's utterly distinct from everything else in creation. He's transcendent. He's all-powerful. He's holy, holy, holy. He's beyond our even capacity to understand. But he also refers to himself by Yahweh, his personal name. And, and Daniel's been talking about that, that. That means he is. It means he is. He is everything. But he's also linked himself multiple ways to Israel. He's saying, I'm your redeemer, Israel. I'm your holy one, I'm your creator. I'm your king. And he also refers to himself as Yahweh, his personal name. And I think the Redeemer picture brings both of those together. If you go to the next slide, you'll see here this idea of creator and king is intersected by a Redeemer. And this picture of Redeemer in the Old Testament is, receives its culmination, the, kind of the pinnacle of that picture in the Bible is in the person of Jesus, who is fully God. He was fully perfect in God. He was None of his godliness was diminished when, when he became a man, but he was also fully man. And it, it really reflects for us this nearness of God to the brokenness of his people. I think it's, it's where God's divinity and his humanity meet together in the person of Jesus. We see that. We also see in this Old Testament picture God promising to redeem them from their current situation. They were in trouble. They were... Um, in the midst of this Babylonian captivity, and God is stepping into it saying, hey, I'm going to redeem you, Israel. Even though it doesn't seem like I'm going to redeem this. Even though it doesn't seem like this could be redeemed, I'm going to redeem this. And I'm going to take this broken thing, and I'm going to make it better and make it whole. And what I love about this is we can see this in Israel, and in God's wisdom and his plan, the fullness of redemption would come through the person of Jesus who would come, offer himself as a sacrifice and make a way so that, the, that our profaneness of humanity could actually come together with the holiness of God. Which, when you, we, you know, we've talked about holiness today, but it's just, it's mind-blowing to me. I mean, like, the fact that the Holy Spirit, God's nature and his spirit dwell inside of our profane Sinful bodies and minds, <laughs> and that He does that, and that that's something that we can experience in our lives, is kind of mind-boggling to me. The holiness of God. I mean, like in the Old Testament, there was there was some guys that as they were carrying the the, the Ark of the Covenant, some guys I don't know if you remember, um, they were carrying it, and some guy tried to stabilize it, and he put his hands on the Ark, and God just struck him dead. And it was just like this this idea that. God is holy, man. You don't mess with him. You don't mess with him. And we need to, to proceed with caution. Even David, King David, when they brought the ark back, it was in this guy's house. It was blessing in his house. And finally David goes, We, we, we gotta bring worship back. We got to bring the ark back. And if you remember that story, every six feet. They would offer a sacrifice to the Lord. I mean, David was so cautious after all the things that had gone wrong, having the ark on this new cart and these people dying, and it was like, it's crazy, right? But but David was so cautious to go, I don't want to mess this up. Holiness is a real thing, but yet God, through the person of Jesus, steps into this, into our story, into the area that we need it the most. And I think redemption sometimes... Um, it's hard to see what God wants uh, to do. And, and in the midst of the messiness of life, we are often in this dark, bleak place where we feel like there's no hope, right? There's no, how's God gonna redeem this? Um, I was abused when I was a kid. Um, how is God gonna redeem that? You know, it brings brokenness into my marriage. It brings brokenness into... My parents, it brings brokenness. I still deal with it, right? But I don't know how God's going to redeem it fully, but he is. And for each of our stories in the areas where we struggle, where we're wrestling, where we feel like we're not there yet, God is going to redeem that. So on the next slide, there's a couple points I want to make. Number one, redemption involves the reclaiming of broken things for the glory of Jesus. Jesus wants our brokenness we shouldn't shy away from it. We should bring it to him and allow him to heal us. And we all need a redemption. And I think there's a myth sometimes that we think of a redemption as something that maybe only certain people need or maybe that's the people that need something before they come to know Jesus. But we all need a redemption. We've all experienced his redemption, but there's all more that God wants to do in us. And secondly... Redemption engages us, so that's that's sanctification, and others' mission in reconciling all things to Christ. So there's areas where God wants to engage us in our own story, the things that God wants to redeem in us. There's also, he wants to engage others in this mission, and God has more for us. Um, Some of the kids are going to be starting to get uh, dismissed. So let's go to the last slide real quickly. There's three questions I want us to consider as we worship and respond. Are we devoted fully to God? When we talked about holiness, we talked about it being devoted to a, a sphere or activity. Are we fully devoted to God? That's a question I want us to all consider and just going, are we, are we all in? Are, are we living our lives in a way that we are fully devoted to God? Number two, what does God want to redeem in us? What does maybe God want to work on in our hearts and our lives that he wants to redeem and make whole again? And also, what, what or who does want God want to redeem through us? So to start thinking beyond ourselves and our own stories, but to go, okay, God, how do you want to use me to redeem other people, to help in this process? Because we are called to be ambassadors of Christ. We're called to actually join God in this mission of reconciling all things to himself, which is the fullness of redemption, the fullness of that story playing out is not just our own lives, but the lives of others as we link in community. Okay, so the worship band is going to come up and we're going to respond. I want you to think about these questions and and maybe in community this week, talk about some of these things. Um, Or just even personally today, wrestle with some of these questions. Um, I'll I'll ask you guys to stand and then I'm going to pray. If you guys could stand with me, um, we'll we'll pray for, for communion. God, I thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are the Holy One. You're the Holy One of Israel. And you've invited us into that story, Jesus. You've invited us to be holy as you are holy. To be dedicated, to be set apart for your purposes and your calling. And I pray that we would embrace that today, Jesus. As we come to the tables and we eat of your Broken body represented by the the cracker, by the bread. God, as as we remember that you were broken for us, your perfect body, your perfect nature, dwelling in human flesh was broken for us. I pray that we would receive life and healing, God. As we drink of the juice and the wine that represents your blood that was shed for us, I pray, God, that you would make us whole again, that you would take away those areas that we are struggling. I pray that we would find redemption, God, as, in your table as we just meet with you, as we communion with you, God, as we allow those broken areas of our lives to touch your holiness and to experience the fullness of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I pray, God, that you would just meet us here today. And as we worship, I pray, God, that our hearts would just be inclined to you. In new ways, she'll so just be with us today. God, we thank you. In Jesus' name, Amen.